Welcome to the Fordham IPLJ podcast with your online editor, Anthony Zangrillo. This week, I'm here with special guest Ben Siders, IP attorney at Lewis Rice in St. Louis. As a former software engineer, Ben routinely counsels business entrepreneurs and startups on IP technology, licensing, and compliance, as well as how to develop and protect IP assets. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Thanks for having me. So this week, we're going to be talking about a note that I published in Fordham IPLJ, book two of volume 27. Basically, it's about the use of unauthorized trademarks in movies, television, and video games. Interestingly, there's a circuit split right now based on the Rogers versus Grimaldi decision that originated in the Second Circuit. Overall, the court uses a framework that has a test that analyzes the artistic relevance of trademark use in allegedly infringing works while also protecting against explicitly misleading uses. So Ben, have you ever come across the use of unauthorized trademarks in video games or movies or television? Uh, I think it happens routinely and, and often unintentionally. Uh, I think in large part because, especially in the indie gaming and in the indie film in industry, people probably don't fully appreciate the scope of trademark rights and, and how they can creep in without intending to. And it's often really simple things like, you know, you're doing a short film and you have a character who takes a phone call on an iPhone. But we just had a huge design patent infringement case over that. Uh, and, of course, you know, Apple obviously has trademark rights in its name, Apple. And uh, you, you see things like that where it sneaks in without anybody really intending to. There's no intended product placement. There's no intent to reference uh, the trademark. Um, you know, marketing and commercial uses of, of trademarks are just part of our everyday lives. And if you're trying to capture everyday life in an artistic work, you're necessarily going to have to use uh, trademarks. Um, in fact, you can't even go outside and film something without you know, accidentally capturing something. Yes, exactly. And one of the main things that I noticed in my note is movie studios as the gatekeepers, or whether it be a developer, developing company of a video game, they get very nervous because they're afraid of litigation costs, even if they feel like they have a First Amendment right, that they can use the trademark. They would rather either blur it out or just do a licensing deal. And do you feel like this almost creates like a feedback loop that people end up thinking that you're not allowed to use a trademark? You know, it, it does in a sense, but the, what, you, what you're describing is to some extent also a consequence of just how law is practiced. So, you know, if you think about it practically, say you're a lawyer and you've got, you know, an aspiring filmmaker who comes to you and says, I want to make a film and I want to use uh, this trademark. Let's say it's, um, it's a science fiction film and you want to have some connection to our world because that's, you know, in filmmaking, that's how you establish uh, – uh, you know, sympathy with the characters and a connection with the audience is to help them connect to your movie. And you can do that by making the world feel more authentic and realistic by using real trademarks and not things that are made up, you know, like Duff Beer from The Simpsons, for example. I don't think I put this in the note, but it was something I came across. It was in the special features, actually, of Boyhood, I believe, um, because that was an indie film. Uh, Ethan Hawke was saying at one point they used maybe like Poland Spring Water or something like that. And they actually blurred out the logo, right, of Poland Spring. Yes. And that is, like, let's say the artistic relevance test. That was reality that this person was using, let's say, a Poland Spring water bottle. Just like you were saying, this is just a consequence of filming things like in the world. Trademarks are everywhere. 
Yeah, I, I think I think your note makes an astute point that um, you know when when you have a habit of blurring out trademarks in film and TV, people tend to assume that if a trademark is not blurred out, that they can assume or infer some level of endorsement or or tacit approval by the trademark holder, which you know probably isn't always true, but. You know, if, if you've seen an Adam Sandler film, you know that, that that is what happens a lot. So I think there's that feedback loop, and then that, that in turn encourages people to continue to blur things out without, if they don't have an explicit license to use it. The other feedback loop is just inherent in how we practice law conservatively. So if someone comes to me and says, I want to use this trademark in an artistic work, can I do that? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'll, I'll tell them, you've probably got a decent First Amendment argument under the artistic relevance test, but... It is a subjective test. It is a qualitative test. And although I think qualitative tests usually produce better outcomes in the cases where they're applied, they have less predictive value because they're so subjective. And they're nice because they take account of a lot of different factors and they're very fact-specific. But it's kind of like copyright and fair use where, yeah, if we have to litigate this, we're probably going to get to the correct outcome. But as a predictive matter, I'm going to advise my client, don't do that. Just blur it out to avoid the risk. Mm-hmm. So uh, although I like, I like the artistic relevance test from an outcomes basis, it's sort of, a, sort of a law student's dream because no matter what you put on the exam is correct, you know? Yes. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, in, in legal practice, it's, its predictive value is, is more limited. And it kind of puts you back in the same place you were in the first place, which is that, okay, um, okay, so if it needs to be more artistic, because your client's going to ignore you regardless. If they want to use it, they're going to use it. Now the next question is, how do I minimize my risk? Well, up the artistic relevance. Well, now we're back to the situation where the trademark concerns are driving the artistic license and, and what goes into the film. And that's exactly what we're trying to avoid with a test like this. So it's, uh, it's like I said, it's, you know, the, the more objective and quantitative a test is, the more predictive value it has, but then the more it kind of cabins you in and produces weird results in real cases. So I, I like the test uh, as a qualitative test, but I think predictively um, that feedback loop probably contributes just as much to the, the current state of how trademarks are used. And do you think judges have the proper expertise to judge artistic relevance? <laughs> that's that's a loaded question. Yes, it um, is. I... I, I uh, <laughs> I don't know that anybody does. Uh, you know, the minute you say artistic relevance, we inherently have to make a judgment about what is art and what is not, mm-hmm. and that's a question that has uh, bedeviled humanity for a millennia and will for uh, as long as we uh, persist as a species. Um, so that that's a really tough one. I think you know, I think we ultimately have to boil it down to a a, a question of fact, right? Is it artistically relevant? Um, you know, if the judge is your is your 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 benchmark for that, I think that's probably a bad benchmark. Not because judges can't make artistic judgments, but because artistic judgments are inherently so subjective. I think you necessarily have to submit it to a more community oriented decision maker. So I would punt that over to a jury, mm. um, and I think that's probably where you're going to have the most luck. And that's what we do with other. You know, subjective questions in law. What what would a reasonable person do in tort law? Um, you know, what what's the standard of a reasonable person? Well, nobody wants to be responsible for saying what that is. So instead, we find a jury and uh, we we let them decide. And I think that's probably how you'd have to do that. And I think we wouldn't always necessarily agree with any given jury's um, conclusions, but that's probably the fairest way to handle it. Um, you know, the the judge probably comes in more where you have to make a showing at the early stages of litigation 
as to whether you've met some minimum threshold standard to avoid, you know, a dismissal on the pleadings or summary judgment or, you know, a dispositive motion of some kind. And looking at the cases, I see that that threshold is generally pretty low. Um, mm. the, the Ninth Circuit seems a little conflicted about it, but, uh, you know, there's a number of cases that say the threshold is basically more than zero artistic relevance. Uh, that at least gets you into discovery and, uh, and potentially in front of a jury. Yes, one of the main things that I noticed a uh, difference in. Uh, so the Second Circuit has a very low barometer. One of my favorite cases is it was about the Hangover 2 and using the knockoff Louis Vuitton bag and it showed mm -hmm. up in the trailers of the film. The judge basically said, well, that character, as we've seen from the first film, like he's, he's a crazy person, that he would have a knockoff bag and then act very snooty. That's part of the joke, right? So in terms of just this test with the Rogers versus Grimaldi, he felt that was artistically relevant. But when you go into the Ninth Circuit, originally with like the Barbie decisions, that they wanted it to be a culturally relevant mark, making the standard higher. Um, and it's interesting, should you have that, um, I guess, higher threshold to achieve artistic relevance. Um, and, and other circuits have played around with um, this test. No, uh, the, I believe it was Seventh Circuit is very wary of adopting it where district courts use the test and then on appeal, they do not actually affirm it. Yeah, and I think that the test itself, you know, raises further questions, you know, artistic relevance to, to what? Does it have to be relevant to the particular, you know, the Louis Vuitton bag is a good example. Is, is a knockoff Louis Vuitton bag relevant to the overall plot of the movie? I haven't mm. seen it, honestly, but just from the trailers, and I, I, can, I would assume not. Right? No. It's, maybe it's a running gag. But it's it just, be, it's right? just a one-off joke. And yeah. what you could so argue is... Is it relevant is... to the movie as a whole? No. Is it relevant to the character? Could you do it a different way? Yeah, probably. So you know, how high is the artistic relevance there? It's, it's highly relevant to the one joke, but how relevant is it to the film? I'd argue not really relevant at all. But as you noted, the court felt it was relevant enough to not, uh, you know, to not uh, offend trademark rights. And I, I suspect a lot of what the artistic relevance test is trying to do, obviously it's striking a balance between artistic license and uh, you know, protecting the rights of, of trademark owners. But we're, we're basically trying to figure out, it's, it's, it's sort of like the Potter Stewart uh, pornography test, right? I'll yes. know it when I see it. Uh, it's, it's, you know, you, you know, a use that we shouldn't have when you see it. And that one, I think the court looked at it and said, um, you know, this is not the kind of thing that trademark rights exist to prevent. Um, it's obviously a joke. Nobody mm -hmm. is, nobody's being confused. Nobody's being misled. Nobody's going to run out and buy a knockoff Louis Vuitton bag because of this three second clip in the hangover too. People watching that movie probably don't even buy or know what Louis Vuitton bags are, you know? So I, I think the, you know, the test is sort of a proxy for just getting at that, that one question of, you know, is this the type of use we want trademark rights to prevent? And I think it correctly falls down on the side of usually it's not a problem. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people going to a movie, uh, you know, understand that you have to film things somewhere on this planet and you're going to have things that are trademarked show up in it. Uh, and I guess that goes back to your point about blurring. The more you blur things out, the more you, you sort of create this problem. Um, but, but uh, yeah, I think I think in, in that particular case, uh, I, I would agree with the court's outcome. Mm -hmm. and, and it's interesting you said, is there another way they could have done this to establish the character? 
that originally was another test the court used a little bit older than the um, Rogers vs. Grimaldi test. I believe it was about uh, Debbie Does Dallas uh, pornography video using the Dallas Cowboys uh, cheerleader uniforms. And they used the alternative avenues test, basically saying if there was a different way to convey this, which obviously there they could have just used you know, normal cheerleader outfits not connected to Dallas, then we you know, don't want to protect this artistic right. Um, yeah, and I, 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 tend to, I tend to put cases like that in a category of their own just because of the explicit nature of, um, of the artistic expression itself mm-hmm. and the time when it took place. You know, that's, you're talking about the, I think the 70s, maybe early 80s, yes. um, and you're dealing with a, you know, a somewhat taboo topic. Uh, in a sexually explicit film. So I think the outcomes of cases like that are, are motivated as much by the nature of the film as, as the legal principle. So I think if that was not, you know, Debbie Does Dallas, but, you know, you know a, a, a more tame and less controversial Debbie film. Debbie Visits Dallas. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Debbie visits, visits Dallas to have coffee with her sister, you know. Maybe it's not that big of a deal. It's the that, Crossroads uh, sequel. A, yeah, that, that, she, that her, she dresses up as a Dallas Cowboy cheerleader for Halloween or something. <laughs> so, I, you know, I think a case like that, um, you know, it, it says what it says, and we had to take it for, for, for what the court said. But I'm, I'm, I, I'm skeptical that cases that are uh, incendiary like that, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, th- I think they're strongly motivated by the controversial nature of their subject matter, particularly when it's not, you know, a, a political controversy where there's a greater public interest in it. I, I think that probably uh, contributes a lot to the outcome of that case and, and the timing. Like I said, the late 70s was a very different era as far as you know, social attitudes than, than now. So I'll say as a final question, how concerned should we be that whether it be filmmakers or movie studios have to change the original conception or are not allowed to go as far against certain companies because they have to get their approval just from, as we talked about from a practical standpoint, in order to use the trademark. An example I would um, give to you is concussion. Because originally, Sony said they weren't going to get the NFL's approval. They ended up getting uh, the NFL's approval. And some people say it changed the movie rather than like condemning the NFL, making it more of a whistleblower story. That's that's a good question. And it kind of goes to the... You know, at the outset, are, are, you know, are, are film studios having to get unnecessary permissions? You, you have a Hobson's choice, right? Do mm-hmm. do I risk using this trademark and and bringing down the wrath of a an enormous industry with effectively limitless resources to fight with me about it, or do I go ask for permission and pay them potentially money that they you know that they don't need and don't deserve to use um, a trademark that I should have the First Amendment right to use anyway? Uh, and I think. I think that concern is real, but I think it it, um, it may be a little overstated in that in, in your typical scenario, I think it's not going to come up that often. Uh, Concussion is a good example of where it might, where you're doing a sort of, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a based on a true story type film that's not necessarily about the NFL specifically, but it still is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's it's arguably for purposes of commentary, criticism. It's borderline journalistic in nature, but but still fictionalized to some extent. And when you have a hybrid film like that, um, it's it's kind of questionable where to draw those lines. Uh, and I think um, you know, 
I think it's it's reasonable for the NFL to say, look, we've put a lot of money into building up this brand. We have billions of dollars riding on it. And before you start saying things that we don't agree with and putting our marks on it, uh, we want to have some, you know, some say in that or at least be compensated for taking on that risk voluntarily or uh, go ahead and do it on your own and you can bear the risk, filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, 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 I think, on, on some level, a fundamental business judgment that's not that dissimilar from other business judgments people have to make in balancing uh, you know, the risk of exposing yourself to liability versus staying true to your vision. I think we find those risks a little more, um, a little harder to accept in art where um, sticking to your vision is the whole purpose of, of artistic expression. Uh, and we, I think we inherently don't like that those decisions are influenced by um, you know, economic and legal considerations like this. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know, on the flip side, when, when you've got a billion dollars wrapped up in a mark and uh, you're faced with, with the risk of it crumbling, crumbling down around your ears, particularly when it's not based on necessarily a strictly fact-driven critical examination but a fictionalization, I, I understand why that would not sit well with rights holders. Exactly. So thank you so much for joining me, Ben. Um, hope to have you on again in the future. Now, yeah, I noticed uh, you were a co-author of the ABA's Legal Guide to Video Game Development. Yes. Sounds like a very interesting um, book that I'm going to pick up. Uh, yeah, it's on the second edition now. I think we just published the second edition last fall. And uh, interestingly enough, I cover the issue of uh, the use of trademarks in video games in my chapter there. So check it out. Uh, must have talked about Grand Theft Auto, right? Um, yes, I think I mentioned um, – actually, I think I talked about the hot coffee mod. Ah, okay. But uh, yeah. All right. So tune in next week.